So I ask you now to turn your Bibles to where we were last week, the epistle of Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, chapter 8. Verses 28 through 30. As we continue to look at the topic of predestination, we saw last week the pre-predestination and kind of had a, a, a grid or foundation by which to think biblically about the topic of predestination. As we discussed the context around the main verse that is somewhat controversial when it comes to the topic of predestination, verse 28 and 30. So let's read. From God's word. And um, I think you guys can hear me, even though we are having technical difficulties. Um, this is the word of God, Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God and all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Father, it is only by your grace we stand before you. We come before you to learn from your word, to see the truth of your word that sanctifies us, that gives us the ability and the power to live according to your will. So, Father, we ask you now to bless our time together in looking at your word so that you may illumine the word Convict us of your truth and empower us by its truth to live a life that glorifies and honors you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week we concluded by saying that these are things that we know as believers. What Paul is writing in Romans chapter 8, in light of the suffering, in light of what should we hope for when we go through life in suffering, which is the glory that is awaiting all of us that are Christ's. In light of that, these are things we know. This is why he begins by saying, we know and we know that those, for those who love God, all things work together for good. This is something that we know. So we should not be rattled by our inability to, to lead as holy of lives, to be faced with the trials and the temptations and the tribulations and the sufferings of life, like disease and, and cancer and temptations and, and falling in sin and the world coming at us in all kinds of ways and making us feel like we are saved for no reason and maybe we're not saved and maybe I'm not really a Christian and all these things that are happening to us should not lead us to despair. Instead, we should know that we have the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us according to the will of God. That's verse 27. Because God works these things out that you go through in this life 
for what he deems to be good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's the conclusion we stopped at last week. Now, having concluded what we know, Paul now gives the basis for this conclusion, the basis and the foundation for the working of all things for good that God does. That's why verse 29 begins, because, with the word because. Now, that, is, that is an important aspect of the, the, the build up, the flow of thought to see because the because is there for a reason. And it's to explain the reason why we know. We know these things because. The reason we know all things work together for good, for what God determines to be good, is because first thing that we see here and by way of outline, really, it's we see about four things. It's because we know that God foreknows. We know God predestines. We know that God calls. We know that God justifies. And we know that God glorifies. So we know all these things work together because God foreknows. God predestines, God calls, God justifies, and God glorifies. That's the reason. So, so. so let's Walk through those things, and actually, I want to I want to just give this to you up front. We don't necessarily have a problem with God calling us. We want to, or God justifying us, or God glorifying us. Most people won't even bat an eyelid about about those things. Most Christians would say, oh yeah, we, we know God calls. There is a call that goes out, and those who respond to the call of the gospel are justified by Christ and Christ alone, through faith in Christ alone. They can't justify themselves. So sure, and, and in terms of being glorified, in terms of actually looking like Jesus Christ, actually seeing God in, in, in His Son, Jesus Christ, as He is, and that the future hope that we have, yeah, sure, that's in, the, that's in the future. So we can't really argue with that as much. And the reason for that is because we experience the call, right? You've experienced the call. You've heard the gospel. And, and God's call for repentance and faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And you responded in faith and repentance, and therefore you are justified. You've experienced the justification. You cannot pay for your sin. Sure, I know this. I'm confident in knowing this. Because I have heard the call, I have responded in faith, and therefore I have been justified. So absolutely. And I know God is going to glorify those who He justifies because He is not going to leave the work incomplete. One commentator actually writes that sanctification is missing in here seemingly, but sanctification is not missing here because sanctification is the first steps to glorification. So as we're being sanctified, as God is leading us and we experience this every day to love him and to adore him and to, to look more and more like his son, Jesus Christ, each day we are drawn to him and we hate our sin more and we love him more. And this is something that you experience each day. That's the road to glory. That's the road to glorification, although we won't get there ultimately on this side uh, as long as 
we are here, we experience this, so we know the hope is there. We, the hope is not wishful thinking, we, we tangibly know. We are convinced of this truth. Because these things happen in time, in, in this temporal realm. So what Paul says in verse 30, to those who he predestines, he also called. To those whom he called, he also justified. To those whom he justified, he also glorified. Doesn't make us uncomfortable. We can actually think through this and see the word and, and just be glad that God called us. Be glad that he justified us. And be glad that he will glorify us. Actually, that's not even the, the verb that he uses, if you notice. Those he justified, he doesn't say he also glorifies. Or he doesn't even say he will glorify. He glorified. Past perfect. It's done. So we can have hope in that. So to follow through with what we have been discussing since last week, this idea of predestination that causes the church to be disunited, that, that causes the church to, 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 to be split, uh, that, causes the, that makes it to be controversial, is actually something that is supposed to be a place for hope. It's a place for joy and comfort. And the reason why it is so is because it deals with what verse 29 says, and those things are God's foreknowledge and God's predestination. Clearly taught in the scripture, so it's not an uh, not a, a unbiblical doctrine or teaching. It is what the scripture teaches, but it deals with an eternal perspective. This happens in a realm that we are not familiar with, that we cannot experience each day. It is not a, temp a, a temporal thing. This is something that happens that God does in his own realm of eternity. So if we have this, these two things in line, if we can actually grasp the truth of the Bible by the power of the Spirit and in faith about what God God's foreknowledge is and his predestination is, then this topic of predestination is something that leads us to have hope and joy and gladness. Now, with that being said, let's see what it means when we say God foreknew. That's verse 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who called according to his purpose, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, right? So it's clear that there God foreknows. And you won't argue with me when I say God has foreknowledge. God knows things God is personally acquainted with someone ahead of time in a real way. Not just in an abstract way. Like God knew who you were before you were even born. Oh, of course, I believe that. God knew me. Yes, is what you would say. It's not just a possibility of God knowing. It's not contingent or dependent on circumstances. God knows people in a personal and real way ahead of time. 
This is what the Bible teaches throughout. Jeremiah tells us this in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Before, actually, God himself says this to Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the innermost parts, I knew you. When did God know Jeremiah? Before he was in the womb. And before you came out of the womb, I set you apart. And I have given you as a prophet to the nations. Notice, it's not because Jeremiah was a special uh, student of, of, of the Torah. It's not because Jeremiah walked faithfully before God, that God knew him. God knew him before his, he was formed in the innermost parts. Last week we read Psalm 139 as a scripture reading. In Psalm 139 verse 16, David says, Your eyes have seen my unshaped substance. And in your book, all of them were written. The days that were formed for me. Notice God's foreknowledge here. When as yet there was not one of them. Before there were days that David lived, God knew who David was. God saw David. And his days were written before he even was thought of. It's what the Bible teaches, and you, you believe that. God has foreknowledge. He knows you personally before you were even born. You can't argue with that. Paul, in, in, in uh, Galatians 1.15, picks up on this idea. But when God who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased. Then, right? You see that, right? God set him apart from his mother's womb. God knew who Paul was going to be. Not because he was a Pharisee of the Pharisee, not because he was going to do this and he was going to do that, and he was going to respond in faith in Christ. No, God knew who he was before he was there. So the question is, is this foreknowledge dependent on how you would eventually respond to God's call? That's the point of controversy, by the way. That's when people find this, this teaching or this doctrine of predestination saying, it, who is it contingent on? Does God know that he's going to save you because he looks down throughout time, and he sees you being born in the early 2000s or wherever you were born, and he's going to look through time, and he's going to know exactly how you would respond, and based on your future response, then he saves you or he elects you. Is that what God does? Is God's foreknowledge contingent on your response? Or another way to look at it is, does God set his love and choose you based on what he knows who you're going to choose? Like God knows who you're going to choose, so he looks down the, 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 the aisle of time, so to speak, and he knows what, who you're going to choose, and based on your choice, then he, he knows you and he predestines you for salvation. Is that how it happens? Or does God choose and set his life on you, uh, his love on you, based on what he knows of his goodwill and his purposes? Is it dependent on your response or his purpose? That's the question. That's the divide. Does God know and save you 
because he knows what you would respond? Or does God know and save you to accomplish his will? Or because it accomplishes his will? That's the question. If so, if we say yes, oh yes, because God, God knows what I'm going to choose, not, not that God does not know, then who does salvation belong to in that sense? Does salvation belong to God or your response? Clearly what the Bible teaches is really God's foreknowledge is dependent on his own purposes and his sovereign will, not on human action. It's not your actions down the line that causes God to choose you and to save you and to know you. Paul writes to Titus and says, He saved us not by works which we did in righteousness. But according to his mercy. Through the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. You notice that, right? That, that phrase, that, that clause that's there, he saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness. See, if you were to answer, God sees ahead of time, however many thousand years after creation, and he knows me in eternity past, and he knows what I would respond. He knows I would respond righteously, and therefore he sets his love on me. He predestines me to be saved because of that. If you answer that, how do you reconcile that he saves us not by works which we did in righteousness? but by his own mercy. And what, what causes that mercy to come past? Is it your response or your righteousness? No, it's his will, it's his purpose. So God's foreknowledge is only dependent on God and his purposes. It's not dependent on how you would eventually respond. One of the famous verses in, in, in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 and 8. And when we talk about salvation, here's what he says. He raised us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. That's the purpose. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith and not this and this not of yourselves it is a gift of God so if we say we believe and we know that salvation is a gift from God and it's not something that we do we receive the faith and the, and, and the grace is not from us and is all from God and he does this ahead of time he knows this ahead of time it's because he wants to fulfill his purpose listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 46 9 through 11 when God himself reveals his attribute to his people. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 11. You can just listen to it. Remember the former things long past. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. How so? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things which have not been done 
Right? It it talks about how God knows things before they actually happen. He intimately knows them and he declares them according. This is his will, his, his, his counsel. Saying, my counsel will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. This is who God is. He knows things before they happen. He has this intimate relationship, including his people, with before they actually come to pass, before they actually do one way or another. And this council is established, and he accomplishes all his good pleasure. Including, look at verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. This, by the way, in the context of Isaiah, is a judgment being passed on Israel. That Israel is going to be ruled over by an Assyrian king who comes from the east, and they're going to go into exile. They're going to be oppressed because of their idolatry. This is punishment from God. This is what he knows, and he's declaring these things to them. So, This is not a positive thing in light of what we might consider to be positive or negative, right? The the biggest issue, as I've mentioned last week, of the doctrine of predestination is people cannot come to terms with a God who predestines people for wrath, which we'll come back to that in in a little while. But this even gives us, right? So he says, he caused this bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have formed it and surely I will do it. This gives us an insight of who God is and how his counsel is formed from before it even comes to pass. And he sees all of that through. So in terms of salvation, in terms of his foreknowledge, it's him. That's the cause. He doesn't know you because you chose right down the line. He knows you from eternity past before you were formed because of his will, not because of your response. See, if we have this sorted out in our minds and our hearts, if God's foreknowledge of you is dependent on his will and his purpose. And you see it in light of that, that he knows you to accomplish his will and his good pleasure in and through you. And that's why he saved you. That's why he saves people in general. That's the point of rejoicing. What a privilege it is to be included in an eternal plan of a holy God and to actually be redeemed and to be included in his own family for that purpose to come past. This is what Paul has in mind in Romans 8. He's not trying to cause a controversy in the church. He's saying you have hope in suffering. You have hope in trial. And this is what the Holy Spirit that is in you, that, 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 that adopted you, and the spirit of adoption that causes you to say, Abba, Father, this is what He intercedes in you according to His will. You have hope. You can rejoice. And you know this. And you know this because you know of God's foreknowledge of you according to His will, not according to your response. If you have this sorted out, what comes next in the text would be much clearer. The doctrine of predestination becomes clearer. 
Because what comes next is, and back in verse 29 of Romans 8, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. Which we see here that God pre not only foreknows, he predestines some. The Greek word is proorsian, where we get the word from preordain. He preordains those. He determines the, the simplest definition of predestination is, is the pre before. Destination, a destiny. There's a place that we're, we're going to be. Um, I, I have read actually uh, an illustration. I've heard an illustration of that. Is if we decide today that we're going to have lunch at my house, what you would do is you would ask me for my address and I'll text it to you. Hypothetical, by the way. And those are, and then you would go and you would either hit the link of my address and it goes straight into your navigation system and it navigates you and it shows you maybe an hour and 15 minutes, maybe an hour and a half, depending on traffic. Definitely not less than an hour after service. So you'll see that. So before you even get in your car and start driving, you know where your destination is. That's the basic definition of predestination. God ordains who is going to be saved and who is not before they get to the destiny. God ordains whom he would glorify in this text. Before you get to glory, glory. This is a place for us to be confident in it, to, to rejoice in. It's not dependent on you or your actions. Or your responses or your sins or your constant battle with sin and falling and getting up and falling and getting up. No. God predestines people to glory before they get to glory. The destination is glory. When did God when does God ordain people to get to glory? Is it once they get up to the doors of glory? No, it's before they even get there, God predestines them. God ordains people to get to glory. This is what Paul's thought process comes all the way in, verse, in chapter 8. Even in chapter 8, verse 18, when he talks about the suffering for this present time and not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us, he says. There is glory to be revealed to us and God ordains for us to be part of that glory that is uncomparable to what we suffer right now in comparison to our suffering, the glory that, that you have in Christ is incredibly immense. And God determines that before you even get there. He ordains that before they even occur. That's what predestination, preordination means. Preordination means. 
And really, reasonably, no one will argue with this premise. Why did it rain yesterday? Oh, because God predetermined before the foundation of the earth that on, on April 25th, it was going, is it 25th? What's the date today? On, I'm ahead. On April 22nd, that it was going to rain. You'd be like, okay. Yeah, that's definitely according to God's plan. He predetermined that. What about your date of birth? Why were you born on April 16th or April 23rd? I see both of them in here. That's why I'm giving them a shout out again in the sermon. See, this is why you need to register a side note. You might even make the sermon cut for happy birthday shout outs. Oh, God determined for you to be born on that day. Oh, yeah, sure. I, I accept that. There's no, I, I, I can't argue with that. This premise makes sense. There's nothing that I did to be born on that day, the day that you would die. Oh, yeah, I, I'll agree. I, I don't know when it is. I don't even know how. I don't even want to think about it because it's scary to think about it. So you won't argue with this premise until we get to the topic of salvation and condemnation. When the question becomes, does God ordain some people to be saved and some people to be condemned before they're even born, before they've even had a chance to hear the gospel, before they've even had a chance to respond? Now it's getting a little hairy, right? Does God actually ordain some people to, to be to go to heaven and be with him forever and enjoy him and worship him and, and all the benefits that come with that before they were they even are thought of? Does he determine that? And in the same way, does God determine some people according to his foreknowledge of his own will, no matter what? Because this is his determination. Before they even hear the gospel, before even they, despite all of that, does he determine some people to go to hell? Oh no. If we answer yes to that question, what do you think that makes God look like? He is unfair. That's unfair that someone in the middle of the Amazon or my uncle who never had a chance to hear the gospel and respond in faith and repentance died and perished in his sin and went to hell because God determined that to be? That's not nice. That makes God seem to be like he is mean and unfair. And that's why we find ourselves asking the question, what is predetermination or predestination? And what are the different, what is election? What does the Bible teach us about this? Because I just can't come to terms that people are predestined for hell. And some people are predestined for heaven. God does so, then he's a mean God and an unfair God. Here's why it's so important for us to have the doctrine of foreknowledge sorted out before we get to the doctrine of predestination. If foreknowledge, the basis of God's predestination, this is foreknowledge. We saw that. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestines. So he doesn't predestine people that he does not foreknow. So his foreknowledge 
is not based on how people would respond. We saw that. It's based on what his eternal pur purpose is. That's why it's important that the previous point of foreknowledge is important. It's important that his predestination is based on his foreknowledge of his own purpose, not ours. So when we look at it from our perspective, you're right. You make a good point. It does seem unfair that God has some people that he had predestined for damnation. And it does look like he's being mean. And I can't come to terms. And those, like it's, it's, it's a valid point to ask. How can a good God predestine people to go to hell? But that's only from our vantage point. If we say we have the same exact vantage point that God sees in terms of salvation and condemnation, then our foreknowledge, uh, the, the idea of foreknowledge becomes based on us, based on what we know, and not based on what he knows to be his eternal purpose. In addition, it's also important to consider what God ordains some people to be. What is God ordaining in this context? Look down at verse 29 again. What exactly is God predestining some people to be like? He says, he predestined those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. It's important to consider that in the context. It's to be like natured and character to his son, Jesus Christ. This is what he predestines people for. This is what he ordains for some people to be, to conform, to be conformed, to be like natured in, in, in terms of character to his son, Jesus Christ. So looking all of that together, God works all things for good based on his foreknowledge for those who love him and for those who are called according to his purpose. And he ordains them to be morphed into the image of Christ who is the archetype or the prototype of this intimate relationship God as father will have with his adopted children. And I, I want to put the emphasis on predestination and adoption being linked throughout the Bible. He predestines us to be like his son implies that he is predestining for adoption. This is the language of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that, would be, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, by predestining us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ himself. So predestination is linked to adoption. Now we can even talk in human terms. If a family decides to adopt a child, that's up to the family to choose and to adopt the child. And that child is destined to be that family's child. It's up to God. God ordains us. Who, who is going to tell me who I can and cannot adopt into my family? In other words, 
Who are we to tell God who he can and cannot adopt into his family? Because he predestines some to be adopted as sons. He predestines you to be a child in his own family, so to speak. As sons and daughters of the living God, your heavenly Father, through his Son, Jesus Christ, and conforms you and morphs you into his character throughout your life until you get to glory. This is why predestination and glory, predestination and adoption, God's preordination. Who are we? To say, oh no, God can, can either adopt everybody or nobody. Which he could do, he could have done, but he chose not. He chose to preordain some to adopt into his family. You see how God is in charge of who he predestines, not our response. Not our merit. He predestines us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. I like this. According to. You ready? The good pleasure of his will. So whether you like it or not, it's according to the good pleasure of his will doesn't matter if it goes down easy. doesn't matter if you kick and scream and that's not fair, God. It's so mean. How dare you, God? It's because it's according to the good pleasure of his will. And who can search his will? Can we? ultimately say we know exactly what God's intricate will for his creation is? The answer is no. In our scripture reading this morning, this is what we saw. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. As Peter introduces himself, he calls them who are chosen in the latter part of verse 1. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His great mercy, not according to what do we think is fair and what we think is right? What, not even not according to his just nature. Not even according to his justice. Because if God were to choose justice over mercy, you and I cannot open the scripture and sit here. There's, there's no reason for us even to discuss this. Because what is justly right for us is eternal damnation because of our sin. But because God chooses to display His mercy, and according to His mercy, and bestowed that mercy to some, according to His own good pleasure and will, we are adopted. We are, this is what He determined before he, we are even glorified before we even saved. I mean, Paul gives this great illustration in the same in the same epistle. What this foreknowledge and predestination actually looks like. In Romans chapter 9, and if you're already in Romans chapter 8, you can just flip, or maybe it's on the same page. Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 24. 
This is a great illustration that Paul gives in, in the context of God's chosen people who are, who are the Israelites. Asking that same question, is God unfair? Does God actually do evil by choosing some to condemnation and choosing some for salvation? He asked that same question. Look down to me. Look down with me. Romans chapter 9, verse 14, where Paul says, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is God unfair? May it never be. Emphatically, God forbid if we say God is unfair. May it never be. Why? For he says to Moses, we saw this, by the way, last week, as Yahweh is passing by and Moses is hidden in the cleft of a rock and God shows part of his form to him and he declares who he is. This is what he says to him. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The buck stops with me, says the Lord. I decide who I show mercy and compassion to and I decide who I show justice. So then, it does not depend on one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up. You guys know the story of Pharaoh. Clearly, you know what happened to Pharaoh. Pharaoh dies in the end. And throughout his life, he's been persecuting God's people, being an instrument of hardship, fighting against God, hardening in his heart. And God says to Pharaoh this, for this very purpose, I raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you. God demonstrating his power in Pharaoh? Was it Pharaoh that split the Red Sea? Was it Pharaoh that caused the ten plagues? Was it Pharaoh that delivered the people of Israel into the promised land. Rhetorically, you, you know, this is not a no. So how did God actually display his power in Pharaoh? In order that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. How? We know what God did to Pharaoh. He destroyed his false gods. He took whatever was dear to him. He ultimately killed him. In the middle of the Red Sea. And by doing so, God demonstrates his power over false gods. And this is what God had purposed before Pharaoh was even born. Before Pharaoh was even Pharaoh. This was God's plan. Verse 18. So then... He has mercy, he saves on whom he desires. And he hardens whom he desires. Still can't sit well with me, this teaching of predestination. You will say then to me, Paul says, 
If he predestined some to, to heaven and to some to hell, some for salvation and some for, um, for, for uh, condemnation, if he shows mercy to some and justice to some, you will say, why does he still find fault in us? Then where's our responsibility? Why does he, if he's already made me like this, why? That appears to be, from our vantage point, a logical fallacy. For who resists his will? If it's, if it's his will for me to go to hell, and like I can't resist that. So why, why does he condemn me for my sin? Ultimately, this is, I'm not responsible. This is ultimately his will. If the buck stops with you, God, here's the buck. Now, answer me. Verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the things molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have authority over the clay? Here, the imagery is that you are the potter, uh, you are the clay, and God is the potter. And who has authority over the clay? Who has authority over you? Is the potter? Is God? To make from the same lump, you can take the same lump of clay. Vessels one vessel from for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. Here the language that he's using is household um, materials, right? So he can take a clay, the potter, if you follow me, and he can make a plate from which you eat and actually keeps your sustenance. And he can take from that same lump and makes a potty, which is dishonorable. Right? He, can, he can do that. The potter can do that. And the, and, and the clay can't say, no, 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 no. I want to I be uh, like a, a vase where pretty flowers can sit in. And I don't want to be used to, 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 to have human waste in me and such. No, I, can't, I, I don't want to be that. You can't, the, the clay can't do that. The potter has authority to make one or the other. And here's the conclusion in verse 22. And what if? And here's our final answer, and this is the conclusion that we get to. What if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, having been prepared for destruction. You follow that, right? God wanting to show and demonstrate how wrathful, how he is a consuming fire, made vessels just for that purpose. In order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon his vessels of mercy. which he prepared beforehand for, you see that word, glory. He preordains for glory and he preordains for judgment because he ultimately has authority over this. And all of it is because he wants to display his and demonstrate his 
either power or justice or mercy. For us and for those who are adopted into the family of God through Christ Jesus by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, this is a place for hope, not argument. Because we are predestined for glory. The reason why we stagger and stumble. Because like I said, the, the rest of the verses are, are really clear. We, we, we can accept them. Because we experience the calling, we experience the justification, we, we also to a degree experience the glorification that's happening in our lives right now so we don't we don't argue with that we can't we know we can't justify ourselves nor can we glorify ourselves so we can say god has authority over that we accept that no questions asked because we have that experience we have that knowledge but the reason why we stagger and stumble to do so, to do the same thing in light of predestination, in terms of foreknowledge, is because seemingly, at face value, these two doctrines, these two principles encroach on what we consider to be our free will. If God predestines us, what about our free will? Don't we have the ability to choose? Or are we just doomed to His predestiny? Because it seems to encroach on that, on our free will, we stagger and we stumble on the doctrine of predestination and foreknowledge. And that we'll see next week. Great cliffhanger. Let's pray. Father and our God, we are so thankful that you know all things. Not only you know all things in an abstract way, but you personally, actively, intentionally know the very intricate details of all there is, all there was, and all there ever be. And in light of that, perfect knowledge we thank you for knowing us intimately not according to our own works or righteous deeds or how hard we run or try but according to your mercy and according to your love and kindness you have known us you have foreknown us and you've predestined us. You've destined and determined and ordained that we may be called your children through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. And by the regeneration of your Spirit. So we thank you, Lord. This is a not a point of contention and not a point of disunity, not a point of to, to wave our fists at you, but it is a place where we can remain thankful and joyful. Father, we thank you for teaching us this truth. For in this truth, there's our hope of glory. For you have determined to display your mercy and your love to us, to give us hope to be conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Not only is he our Lord, 
your words is he is firstborn among many brethren. So he, in a sense, there's a sense where he is also intimate, like a brother to us. Now we can look to him and not only be saved, but also be sanctified and be conformed into his image. For this is your plan for your children to give us an inheritance, not of perishable things, but imperishable. So Father, we pray that you continue to protect us by your power so that we may bring glory to your name, honor to your son, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.